Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. We will halve inflation, grow the economy, reduce debt. Nothing's changed. The circus moves on, rinse and repeat. We have an opportunity to become Europe's Silicon Valley. We can perhaps be a broker of some sort with Ukraine. We expect inflation to come off quite rapidly in the rest of this year. Obviously, we want to see that happen. What we now need is a period of stable, quiet, serious government. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Lizzie Burden. Coming up on today's programme, most of the week, Lizzie, we've been talking about green policies. Mm. So, of course, it caught everyone's attention. The Greenpeace protesters who clammed up onto Rishi Sunak's mansion in that protest in North Yorkshire. Big row about how that happened. There have been several arrests about it. But it sort of brings us on to today's podcast. We want to do a bit more of a deep dive into crime and statistics. Yeah, we've got Emily Ashton with us, our UK government reporter. She's been on a travels around the country to look deeper into this issue ahead of the general election. It's becoming a major battleground. It's one that we've talked about at Prime Minister's Questions. It's been the main focus. Really great to have you with us, Emily. There does seem to be a disconnect between what the government's saying in Westminster and what the lived experience is in Britain when it comes to crime. Yeah, so what you hear from Westminster and the government is that police numbers are up. They made this big statement about that earlier this year. And that crime is falling and has fallen while the Tories have been in power. But actually, the statistics aren't that simple. Um, And they don't actually reflect perceptions on the ground, which I think is key. So it's all very well for people to hear that. But they're saying, OK, well, why can't I see that on my street corner. I know it's the lack of kind of neighbourhood police that has been cut, but also the basic service of what you expect the police to do. So if you suffer a crime and you call up, you might expect a police person, the police officer to, to turn up and investigate. Well, in many cases, that simply doesn't happen anymore. Um, and most fundamentally, it's about these charge rates which have dropped quite dramatically. So only 5%, 5.7% of um, crimes actually lead to a suspect being charged or summoned to court now, according to latest statistics. And I think a lot of people will be quite shocked at that, how low that is now, that, solves, that crimes aren't being solved. So 94% more than are not. That, I mean, that it. is an absolutely staggering figure. Um, you've been travelling across the country also to investigate this further, for example, up in the northeast of England in Middlesbrough, uh, talking to people there. I mean, what surprised you most about what you heard? Yeah, the reason we went to Middlesbrough and Cleveland, this, this area in northeast England, was because crime rates are particularly high up there, particularly serious violence, actually. But we wanted to kind of take a look on the ground, see what's happening. There's a, there's an area, there's a real particular suburb of Middlesbrough where antisocial behaviour is, is, is quite high. And mm. local residents are, are just um, appalled at what's going on. They want action, but they don't see that these offenders are being brought to justice. And I think that's very, very frustrating for people. 
And I think it has a real political angle as well because we're talking about the Red Wall. These are areas of Northern England that were traditionally Labour mm. and then post-Brexit referendum, a lot of people voted Conservative. And I think if you if you get a situation on the ground like antisocial behaviour or theft not being investigated, that there, there is a feeling among people that they're not being listened to, they're not being heard. A sense of despondency, as Labour's Emily Thornbury put it. But that really matters and you might find that actually they, they um decide at the next election that they don't want the Conservatives anymore because they're not really getting anything from them. So they, they voted Conservative for a change. Well, hang on. Um, once again, complacency has taken over and they don't really feel like they're being listened to. So I think that is quite a, a fundamental pattern that we're seeing up there and something that Rishi Sunak should be quite worried about. Well, yeah, at the start of the year, both the party leaders set out their top five priorities and for Keir Starmer, one of them was making Britain's streets safe. When it's when law and order is something that's traditionally associated with the Conservatives, why do you think Rishi Sunak didn't make it one of his top priorities? Yeah, it's interesting. It's not laid out in his five pledges, but but he has, both of them, both the Conservatives and Labour have kind of made a bit of a thing of it on press release after press release. I mean, even just this week alone, there's been two stories from Labour analysing crime stats and saying how bad things have got and then you see kind of rebuttals and conservatives oh labor's soft on crime they don't want to see these people locked up and um, they call keir starmer so softy so you know, they see they see it as a real um they see it as a as an issue they need to worry about i think um and what's interesting is that labor are using this um as as a key issue ahead of the election mm. because it was the Conservatives, let's not forget, that were strong on law and order and have been traditionally. But Labour sense it as a weakness now. And the polling, recent polling, shows that actually Labour are more trusted on law and order than the Conservatives. Yeah, which is um, a very important point. But it also goes to a wider issue around the the big services in Britain being perhaps broken, you know, the NHS, big uh, infrastructure, you know, the things that people feel in their daily lives. And that's, you know, quite, quite new, I think, for the UK. Exactly. And this, this coming election, probably next year, is, is going to be about public services, cost of living and public services. The last few elections was about Brexit. So we're in a, we're in a completely different state of affairs here. But public service, this is, this is actually what it all hinges on. It's not just about crime and whether you've been a victim of crime. It's about your reliance on basic public services mm -hmm. and what you've come to expect from society. We see it with the NHS as well, that if you call 999 for an ambulance, will that ambulance turn up? Even that kind of hint of doubt is so worrying in a in a 21st century um g7 economy g7 mm -hmm. economy you know and, and with water sewage you know water you should be able to swim in your waters you know um transport can you get a train will it actually turn up on time all these things they culminate don't they in a feeling of well hang on what's the government doing for me and crime is just one aspect of that and the other the other thing just to say on that is this major problem for policing here because there is a fundamental model of policing that relies on the public um, giving information, reporting crimes, and those crimes being investigated. And if that model starts breaking down, well, what happens next? You know, what happens to society mm -hmm. um, if policing isn't seen as legitimate? Do we, does that lead to more crime? You know, it's, it is quite um, big stuff that we're looking at. And I suppose the question that people will ask themselves is, 
has society actually deteriorated in modern Britain or is this ultimately the inevitable legacy of austerity? Yeah, definitely. And you're looking at, um, we, we've been looking at funding cuts and that's just a fact, you know, there had been quite deep cuts to public funding under the Conservatives and, you know, some of that has been kind of rolled back in recent years. But in the 2010s, there were deep cuts and part, a lot of that was to do with justice and that's kind of tied up as well that maybe policing numbers are back to what they were in the 2010s but they're just replacing the numbers of police that were cut you see and not all of them are now being replaced as neighborhood police either so you don't see them on the, on the streets um so I, I think uh i think cuts are really important and also on the justice side obviously cuts to courts so you, if, if the court system is all jammed up and you can't get trials for years then justice isn't really done there either Emily, there's one other thought, though, which is I wonder what the response from the policing community feels like. I mean, there have been uh, in the last couple of years enormous scandals around the lead metropolitan police lead because it trains so many other of the police forces and it's the biggest in the country. Um, I wonder what the sense is within the policing community that has obviously, you know, a hugely close relationship with government, does one need to say that? Um, pay, recruitment, staffing levels, all that sort of stuff. Have we thought about that a bit? Absolutely. And, it, you know, as you say, there have been these horrendous high profile cases over the last couple of years, which has has added to this level of falling trust in the police. Um, but But as you say, you know, the majority of police are hard-working people who are who are trying to help people um, go about their business, and they would probably point to funding as being the main problem here, not not being um, paid enough, conditions not being good enough. So this isn't um, a criticism of the police themselves; it's a criticism of a system that has allowed uh, crime and justice to fail. All right, our UK government reporter Emily Ashton, really great to have you with us in the studio. Thank you for bringing us that reporting. Another area where these statistics really do matter is on inflation. So the Bank of England raised interest rates for the 14th time in a row. That increase means steeper borrowing costs, higher mortgage rates and a gloomier economic outlook for the British people. Just as important, though, is what Governor Andrew Bailey says interest rates will need to do in future, i.e. remain high for some time until inflation is brought under control. Now, Bloomberg's editor-at-large, Francine Lacroix, interviewed Governor Andrew Bailey. He told her, one thing is clear, we are on the right path. I'm much more confident now that it's on the downslope. Mm -hmm. But of course people want to see that, they want to really believe it, they want to build, and then it right. gets built into people's expectations, it gets built into price setting, it gets yep. built into wage setting. We've got to see that happen. Andrew Bailey there. Well, Francine Lacqua joins us now in studio. Francine, great to have you with us. Of course, you did uh, the interview with Andrew Bailey after the big decision, hugely important. Um, it struck Lizzie and I that Andrew Bailey is sounding increasingly like a politician. He's obviously often on the front pages. Did you get that impression that he's trying to give the good news to the British people? So I thought he was sleeker than usual. Actually, mm. he was on pretty good form. I think his messaging and his communication was tighter than usual. And I think if you listen to the language, it's a little bit more like the ECB has said in the last couple of months. So I don't know whether he's just turning to more politician or whether he's just seeing the worst news behind him so that he thinks, look, we're seeing a, a glimmer of hope and now it's about tightening up um, the cycle. So the fact that, first of all, he talks about risks probably 
you know, crystallizing. And the fact that interest rates may not need to go higher, but will stay there for longer. We had a good debate after the press conference and saying, like, why did you change that language? What was in the guidance before that bothered you? What you, what are you worried about? Mm. And he was quite nuanced, actually, on how he set that up. He says, look, this is the last mile of UK inflation. So I asked him, right, so is this, you know, are you victorious? He said, well, I'm not victorious, but we're seeing the end of the worst. So of course, they're data dependent. But now it's, it's, it's about not rocking the boat and see what happens in the next couple of months, I think, rather than them feeling that they're constantly fighting market forces. Yeah, it was interesting in the press conference listening to him not batting away the comparison to Christine Lagarde, actually seemingly welcoming it because he seemed to say, you know, the situation is pretty similar to the ECB. I thought it was interesting as well that he said the BOE can get inflation back to target in two ways you know rates can either rapidly go up and then come down rapidly or they can go up gradually and stay there for longer and charlie bean the ex-boe policymaker put it to me that it's like everest versus table mountain fran do you get the sense that they're going for the table mountain scenario i know he wouldn't tell you whether they're going to cut rates yeah, he definitely pushed back against that. He was quite funny in the press conference. He says, look, it's way too soon uh, talking about cuts. But I think there is maybe a slight bias towards tightening, you know, th- that may not unravel rapidly. Look, the next decision, Lizzie, and you're absolutely right in, in saying, look, it's it's maybe a tabletop because then you have more control over what happens, right? If you keep interest rates, let's say they go up 25 basis points, but then if you, if you keep them there for longer, it means that you have more of a maneuver of going up or down if needed. If you continue talking the market up that you're going to hike, then it could become problematic. Now, remember, next time they decide is on September 21st. And by the time policymakers announce that, they'll have two batches of labor market and inflation data from the Office for National Statistics. So I think they're maybe waiting for September to have just a, a better picture of what their hikes so far have been doing to the economy and to house prices. Yeah, absolutely. We can't talk about this, though, sort of devoid of people, right? Even though um, Governor Bailey is talking about, you know, the last mile, he even said that he was talking about that loosely, i.e. interest rates have gone up a lot, they're really high, and there's loads of pain for voters in the country. I mean, we're seeing house prices falling at a really rapid pace. That high interest rate is causing a lot of issues for the economy. That's the whole point of it, isn't it? That's the whole point, right? And and I think we also heard it from the ECB is that they, they need to manufacture a slowdown if they're going to handle inflation. And so they don't want to be too aggressive and put the economy on its knees. But it's also, you know, it'd be science fiction to think that they're not trying to really put a bit of pain out there uh, for households, even for mortgages, because that's the only way that they keep that inflation narrative back. Now, if you look at, you know, some of the things, consumer price index, and I mm-hmm. think this is part of what the market is looking at, is that there is an expectation that it goes, um, you know, drops, for example, to 4.9% this year from the latest reading of 7.9%. So that's big, but 4.9% is still way above target. And so the painful bit could actually be from a 4% inflation target, you know, 4% inflation to their target of under 3%. And and that's the, the, the basically the difficult bit. And yeah. that's what 
the Fed will also have to grapple with is you get, you know, it falls by half, but it's still much higher than what you're meant to do. And yet, conveniently, it's within Rishi Sudak's target. Of course, it's his number one priority to halve inflation by the end of the year. And they don't, the Bank of England, see a recession anymore. So Rishi Sunak getting two of his five priorities, according to this new forecast. Is it just convenient, this? I mean, we've had that recent uh, criticism of the Bank of England by the Chancellor's Economic Advisory Panel, this Bloomberg scoop saying that a majority of them were worried about the risk of over-tightening. Yeah, I think it comes back to Caroline's point. Do you think that maybe Andrew Bailey's been weighed on by the politicians? I, I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, 4.9% is not comfortable for central banks. So if you look at the pattern of inflation, it's quite um, easy, let's say, given the current market dynamics to half it at a very uncomfortable level for central banks. So let's say that CPI is at 4.9%, you're a central bank and you're still stuck. You say, right, what's my economy doing yeah, and how much do I still have to, to hike rates further? A lot will depend on private sector wages and mm. what they will do. And so if you look at some of the unions and what they're negotiating with, you, you could actually, by the end of the year, CPI go, go up a little bit further. So it comes down at halves, making an easier job for, for Rishi Sunak, but then goes back up. Yeah, that could be a real real concern. I mean, just look today, you know, British Airways Unite talking about a um, big pay rise for their staff, you know, 13% or a little bit over. Yeah, and the Bank of England wants 2% inflation. We're at just below 8 So, yeah, even if you halve it to 4%, it's, it's still very, very tricky. Francine, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Bloomberg's editor-at-large, Francine Lacroix. Uh, and, of course, she was in conversation with the governor of the Bank of England, Andrew Bailey. So, Caroline, we've talked about crime. Mm -hmm. We've talked about the economy, two areas that are traditionally associated with the Conservative Party. But Labour would argue that the public's trust on both has been lost. They're battling to take over on the two. And Shadow Health Secretary Wes Streeting says the next thing that Labour's going to lead on is national security, defence. That's the next thing to get them into Downing Street. There's another key to the doors of number 10, I reckon. Is there? What is it? Charisma. Well, yes, sure. <laughs> so we've got a man who knows a lot about charisma on next. It's James Matthewson. He is a recovering political aide and now a writer and performer. And his show, Serial Spinners, The Dark Arts of Politics, is starting at the Edinburgh Fringe, which begins today. It's all about finding the funny side in the tricks used by politicians and their advisers. And he joins us now. Great to have you with us, James. It's a pleasure to join you. Thank you for having me. This seems like a very weird career move or a funny one. What got you into politics and then comedy? <laughs> exactly, yeah. It's part, it's part of my ongoing recovery, if you, as you've identified <laughs> there. Um, I had to, had to try and take some of the um, the cynicism and, and, and the jadedness of, of working in politics and try and spin it around myself. So I've ended up, uh, yeah, at the Edinburgh Fringe performing. And it's... As you say, a bit of a, a bit of a one eighty, but I'm absolutely having the time of my life doing so. What's the show about? So Serial Spinners came about as a lecture initially. So I delivered this to universities who would ask me to come and talk to their politics students and their their media and their comm students about working in politics and what it's like to do so. So I'd initially put this together for that kind of audience and I developed a few things during those lectures, a few tools, a few kind of 
um, mechanisms to talk about different things that were quite funny and, and ended up being quite humorous um, and, and took the kind of, you know, sting out of the tail of, of a lot of the dark elements of politics. Um, and I, it wasn't until I had a conversation with a friend who who is a producer for theatre who said, this is actually something that wider audiences might really enjoy. So I hadn't thought about it in that capacity until then. And yeah, as a result, I've, I've tailored it, I've adapted it, and I've made that lecture into a more theatrical kind of style performance, which is a new thing for me entirely, but it's been very exciting. Um, and it's been great fun doing so. Thinking about British politics now in the post Boris Johnson era, do you think it's a bad thing to be funny? Oh, yeah. Honestly, it is a, a difficult area with politics, isn't it? Because that populism, that, you know, humour is a key part of it, isn't it? Uh, we saw it with Trump. We saw it with, with Johnson. We've seen it with, you know, those fans of that kind of politics say, oh, well, that individual's funny, therefore they, they warrant my support as a politician. I think we have an interesting relationship with it in Britain, especially because satire and and humour around politics has always been prevalent. And it's it's a key part of politics. We all laugh about it, mm. we all talk about it. it. It helps us kind of cope with the despair, I think, of a lot of it sometimes. Um, but I, I think when politicians themselves start to engage in that, it crosses a line into a very, very strange area. And Boris Johnson was an expert of doing so because it, it helped him avoid... Um, scrutiny on many, many important subjects by, you know, default and with jokes. And indeed, in this show, I've got uh, a, a huge part of it talking about some of the strategies that he used to do so as well. Yeah, we um, usually follow Prime Minister's questions on a Wednesday. Um, and actually, one of the sort of key uh, things about that very again sort of theatrical combative debating um, style of politics here in the UK is that sometimes the politicians try to land a joke or two at least a quip or uh, you know a, a strong kind of line against opponents do you think Keir Starmer is getting there when he tries to make a joke or undercut Rishi Sunak I think it's uh, it's very difficult, and I don't think it comes naturally to, to <laughs> Keir Starmer. I don't think it comes naturally to Rishi Sunak either. Um, I do think it's a bit of a um, an antithesis of the politician and the type of person you want the politician to be, to be the joker as well. I mean, often, you know, oratory skills are, are essential, but being a naturally funny person doesn't often go with being serious enough to to run the country and to be, you know, um, kind of embedded in economics and all the rest of it. Keir Starmer's obviously been a very good public speaker because of his background in law, but those jokes, you can just tell, can't you? You can just tell when they've been written by somebody else, um, especially some I think we had last year, some Love Island ones, you know, that were brought up. Um, the, I don't know. Like... if they, they just sometimes seem a bit disingenuous, don't they? And I think the public sees through it. Yeah, you can usually tell when they're reading it out of the notebook oh, <laughs> that it's cringe. been written, but, you know. James, who's the funniest politician in Westminster? Oh, God. I mean, in my in my encounters, people who I've met, 
Um, I would say, and I mean, I'm, I'm going to be biased in a sense, it's going to be a Labour, <laughs> Labour politician who I went with, but I think Dennis Skinner, back in the day, had some of the best quips. And obviously during um, Black Rod's announcement of, you know, the Queen being in Parliament every year and the state opening, he used to have some zingers, you know, um, that he would come out with, uh, to, to a point where Tory MPs used to try and tie up the microphone that hung above him. Because they didn't want him to be heard, um, so you know there was always this this expectation of what's Dennis going to say. But it's that sharp wit and that ability to think on your feet, I think, that makes you makes you funny, and obviously also makes you a, a, an able politician, mm. especially on the backbenches. I know you didn't pick a current politician, James. Is that because it used to be funnier <laughs> in Westminster? Is it because Twitter's killed the humour? Oh, a very good point. Yes, I think um, I think Twitter's killed a lot of things. Um, I think it's also killed people's appetite towards politics, and and humor is one of those things. I mean, the the age of the meme and the age of you know um, TikTok and all the rest of it can mean things are very funny um, when taken out of context. A lot of time, um, you'll know, for example, in America at the moment, Mitch McConnell you know, freezing during his, his, um, his TV interview recently. That's now doing the rounds as a, as I mean, to people who aren't even interested in politics, who don't know who he is, because um, they find it funny. But these very, very short sound bites and, and, and clips taken out of context now are the, the central humour of it. Whereas originally, you know, somebody making jokes during a debate, for example, People like Tony Benn back in the day, you know, he used to make a lot of jokes. There's a lot of backbench MPs. Jacob Rees-Mogg even, you know. Uh, I mean, he's obviously a very different politician to my kind of politician, but he's somebody who engages in humour and likes to. But it's all long-form stuff, you know, and, and people don't yeah. have the time to engage. I think social media has changed it in that respect. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, the company formerly known as Twitter, obviously X now, we know that. Um, My apologies. No, sorry, just for anyone out there who might send us a message on X about it. Um, what about then what you're hoping to get from um, the Edinburgh Fringe? I mean, it's an it's an incredible uh, month, isn't it, up in Edinburgh? It's, it's such a fixture in the UK. It's like 75 years that it's been going on. There's a lot of lack of funding for the arts in the UK and the Edinburgh Fringe really wanted extra government funding they got a bit in the budget last time around but there's a real kind of precariousness to this and yet it's often a pipeline to getting a job in in um you know on a bigger stage theater or tv or whatever it might be so it's it's such a kind of fascinating month in august in edinburgh i wonder what you are hoping to get from the experience from the audience from presenting your experience in politics to them it is, and there's a real buzz already, you know. I mean, we're, I mean, officially haven't kicked off yet, but I mean, it's that energy that's already been floating around the city. I mean, I'm lucky enough to live here now. I've been here quite a few months, um, living in the city uh, full time, which is now my home. So I'm I'm lucky to see it outside the fringe, inside the fringe. But the the city just changes. The atmosphere lifts completely, um, and people have have got a total different energy about them. And for me, I really think that ability to connect politics with a wider audience and with a younger audience to try and take some of the despair and hopelessness out of it because it has been really you know a, a lot since the pandemic especially 
people don't want to listen to the news, they don't want to listen about politics. I've had a few friends recently coming out the woodwork saying, what podcast should I listen to? What news should I listen to to get, you know, up to date on politics? I hope you told him um, Bloomberg UK be... politics. Obviously, <laughs> top of the list. Absolutely. Always will be. Um, along with others. Other podcasts are available, of course. Um, but we've got that, uh, that, you know, that kind of appetite starting to develop again now after the the gloom and the doom of the past few years. And I think hopefully what, I, what I'd love to do with this show is to see how people receive it, maybe take it to a wider audience after this, but perhaps a tour or something like that, and just get people engaged with what actually happens in politics. You know, because everyone thinks that they have an idea of what happens in the back room, how the sausage gets made, all the rest of that. But really the, the reality and the people behind the scenes don't often get the recognition. And I've seen many colleagues working in politics burnt out at a young age um and i think to get that change and to get you know more of a positive reflection on the work people do behind the scenes you've got to approach it with humor because that you know humor is the is the thing that everybody engages with and hopefully everybody understands as well well break a leg james that's james matthewson his show serial spinners the dark arts of politics is coming up at the edinburgh fringe and our co-host stephen carroll has actually abandoned us to go up there so you might bump into him james good luck and thank you lizzie you've given stephen carroll's secret away he had a whole spreadsheet of all the different shows he was going to see up in edinburgh good man i hope he has a wonderful time uh, that's it from us for today if you like the program don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so that other people can find it on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you listen this episode was produced by jack ryan and james Wilcock, and our audio engineer was marufal hussein i'm lizzie burden i'm caroline hepgett we'll be back with more next week this is bloomberg Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.